we are. All right. It's ready. It's going. It's about the right level, so I think we're good. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, so anyway, this is kind of two old friends talking. This is a, a situation where, as amazing as it is to say, are you officially 50 yet? I am 52. Oh, 52. Okay. Yeah. We're 52 and 47, and both of us have had strokes. Multiple and, strokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And so, let's first of all start by saying, why don't you open us up with a little bit of prayer, Rob? Glad to. Dear Heavenly Father, I'm thankful, first off, just to have time with Dale. Um, <laughs> You know, you've, you've taken us both through many struggles, and we're just thankful that no matter what we go through or put ourselves through, you are still there, and you're there patiently waiting for us, and we're just thankful that you, you don't turn your back on us. We ask that this time be blessed that whatever comes about from it can maybe help or encourage someone else. All these things we ask in your name. Amen. Amen. That's a good one. So let's start by talking about how we met. Your name is Rob Wood. At least last time I checked it was. Still is, yeah. Haven't changed <laughs> it. Um, haven't, haven't had needed to change it. A couple of close calls, but yeah. Um, uh, Robert Wood, like I said, I'm, I'm 52. Is that? I don't know what it is or not. Okay, it's really good. Um, it's really good. Pick it up. We we met uh, through at the time a mutual acquaintance. 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 <laughs> uh, no, that, that really is a bad thing. <laughs> no, yeah. I did. Um, Russ Gerke, um, and uh, we 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 kind of stumbled into business opportunity together. <laughs> And quite honestly, I, I don't, I don't believe either one of us had any idea what we were getting into or no. exactly what we were supposed to do with we each other. Didn't. Yeah. Um, I know you and Russ had kind of started the American Green Holdings concept, and um, Russ kind of wanted me to come on board, and you offered me a position. And well, I know there for the first for the first few weeks, it was kind of like. It was the blind leading the blind. Yeah, it was. That, yeah, yeah. And so uh, let's talk about what was American Green Holdings. American Green Holdings was a beautiful dream. <laughs> it uh, was a good dream. It was. It was a. It was. A, it was a great dream. Uh, you know, we had the idea of trying to have a business that was going to be financially successful so that we could in turn do a lot of of good in the world as we perceived uh -huh. it it was kind of that, that triple bottom line idea that we wanted to do well so that we could do good yeah um and that that was really you know the ideas of sustainability and alternative energy uh were all good um and and i i really do think that there were there were some things that we were ahead of the curve on. Yeah. 
perhaps a bit too far ahead of the curve. <laughs> like uh, a big head. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we had some places where maybe our vision was not quite as clear as it could have been. Um, and, you know, my gosh, we worked, we worked so hard. Um, but it was, it was, uh, it was, it's interesting. We started out this way as, as I pulled into town, I came in by the, by our old building, the, the old industrial <laughs> yeah. complex. And I, I had to, divert from Google's directions and say, I, I got to drive around here a little bit. And That's cool. It's kind of like uh, a, a few, a few flashbacks. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a, it was a, it was a great, great idea. Just unfortunately it, it did not, did not come together in the way we thought it was going to. Well, what would you say were the things that kept it from coming together? Probably the things that kept it from coming together was, well, quite honestly, in, in some ways, we, I remember us having conversations that we wanted to keep diversified so that we didn't put all of our eggs in one basket. And uh -huh. then because of a combination of factors, most of which were beyond our control, we ended up doing exactly the one thing we didn't want to do, which was put all of our eggs in one basket. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that basket had a gaping hole <laughs> in it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that was, that was, as the economy went down, you know, people who owed us money w were unable to pay, and we were unable to pay the people we owed money to. Yeah, and, and it was a, you know, I have, I, I have spent many, many hours wondering about what we could have done differently and uh, you know I, th I think I think there were some things that we could have done differently but I know at the time we we could not see those things yeah well um, we didn't have enough business acumen to get it all done when the manufacturing part went down yeah 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 and and when the when the manufacturing side of it shot down and, and you know we we did get kind of screwed over there was a couple places where people had promised us they were going to come through and had they come through that would help we'd, we'd yeah. have been in a lot better position but mm -hmm. uh you know i i think i remember i remember one morning and it was it was probably some stupid hour like four or five o'clock <laughs> in the morning and when and both of us had come into the office <laughs> And, and we both stood there, and I know I had that whiteboard in my office, and, and I had uh -huh. stuff written down. I was kind of brainstorming, and, and I remember we both wholeheartedly agreed that we knew we were where we were supposed to be, that we were doing what God wanted us to do. Uh -huh. And, you know, I, I still look back on that day, and I, and I realize that I, I do believe that was correct. We just didn't realize what the ends were that God had in mind. Well, and, you know, that's one of the things that was so hard for me through all this was I went for a long time really believing that I never had any doubt in God, but I had every bit of doubt that I knew what God wanted me to do. Yeah. 
Yeah, you know, I, I think for one of the things that, that really, as we went through that, as we were going through that, it was my, uh, I have since learned that I have suffered from depression since, since I was in the Army, for sure. Right. Uh, I did not realize it, uh, didn't know what it was. And as we kind of came through on the backside of, as, as things were kind of crashing down around us, and, and I remember I, I drove all the way from Joplin to Crane, which is about an hour drive. Yeah. Uh, even for a couple of weeks after we had kind of put the final nail in the coffin, just because I, I kept thinking there still had to be something else. Yeah, exactly. There still had to be something else. Oh, yeah. And um, I literally... It wasn't until I no longer had money to put <laughs> gas in the car to come to Crane uh-huh. that I was like, okay, this is, and the depression just spiraled me down uh, terribly. And what I, what I eventually came to realize was that we were right. We were where God needed us to be, where God wanted us to be. Uh-huh. I just did not realize at the time that it was because he was, at least in my case, uh-huh. he was teaching me that I had to rely more on him than on myself. Well, and I think that took me another, it took me another dozen years and several strokes to get that, <laughs> you know, to figure that out. Because literally, it wasn't one, two, three, it was number four yeah. that I just realized no, I need to step back and realize, thinking about all that I did in 2006 and 2007 to be a better person and to really think about how to lay this stuff. And, oh my gosh, it took me so long to get back. It took me four strokes to get there. At least four. Yeah, yeah. That's And that is one of those, uh, the, I don't want to say funny thing about strokes, but I know the la- the last two that I had, um, I had one on a Saturday morning. Uh-huh. Uh, my wife and I, my wife and I were actually walking through uh, Sam's Club. Okay. We had taken one of the dogs out for a walk in the park, and we were having a nice morning. And I was walking through Sam's Club with her, and all of a sudden, it was like um, the world went sideways. Wow. And she looked at me, and she knew right away something was wrong. Okay. And because... And this was the first one, is that right? No, no, this was actually... Okay. This would have been probably three and four. Okay. Uh, yeah, yeah, three and four. Uh-huh. And uh, the, first, the first two had been many years previous, but those, those two, it was like, uh, that, that first one was on Saturday... And we went home, and, and I, just, I just went to bed. I, I, stroke had not entered my mind. Uh-huh. Um, Strokes don't hurt, at least in my experience. No, no, I never felt any, any pain. Uh-huh. I just had uh, uh, deficit of function. <laughs> and uh, so we went home, and I went to bed and slept the rest of the day and that night uh-huh. and uh, went Monday went to work and 
she had kind of needled me that I needed to talk to my doctor. And so I called my my doctor, and they set me up with an appointment to come in and see him on Thursday. No. Yes. Yeah, on Thursday. And that, that Thursday morning, I had gone out with my, uh, I worked in the field with a nurse, and we uh-huh. were we were at veterans' homes, and, and I, uh, I was at the last one, and I began to have another stroke. Um, and actually the veteran was the one who really noticed it first oh, really? because That's funny. I couldn't get, I sounded like I had Tourette's. I couldn't get word. I couldn't get a sentence out of my mouth uh-huh. and I would get frustrated and, and curse, which was something he was not used to hearing me do because I didn't do it nearly as much as I used to. <laughs> and, uh, especially when I'm working with patients. And he finally looked at me and he says, Rob, you, you really should get to the doctor. Something's not right. Uh-huh. And about time that time. Time lost his brain last. That's what they yeah, say. Yeah. I was like, you know, I think you're right. And so the nurse and I went back to the office, which is where my doctor was. And I went in and, and boy, they just immediately started the ball rolling, getting me into the hospital. And I know at one point. This wonderful nurse who was herself going through chemo treatments and uh, was battling cancer. Oh, jeez. Um, I'm laying there on a gurney, and she's asking me questions. And all of a sudden, my my sentences become coming out began coming out in the wrong order. <laughs> okay. You know the word the words instead of being able to say the cat is gray, uh-huh. it, was, it was you know gray cat the is you wow. know just. And you know how you form a sentence in your head? Yeah. And then you say it, and you hear it, and you recognize these two things go together. Yeah. All of a sudden, they're not going together anymore. I, what I'm hearing coming out of my mouth is not what my brain wanted to say. Huh. And this this nurse, you know, she gave me that look where I realized I was in trouble. Because her <laughs> eyes got real big, and I was like, oh, crap. If she's looking at me that way, I am in trouble. And so they sent me to the hospital, and I was there for, for several days, and you came by and saw yeah, me. Yeah, I saw you. But it was, uh, it was, it was a difficult time. And then uh, as I was recovering from it, I was not really doing the things that I should have been doing. My, my nurse chewed me out significantly because uh, she said I should have taken off work at least a week. Uh-huh. And I, I actually didn't take any time off. I got out of the hospital. I got out of the hospital on a Saturday morning. Uh-huh. I was in the pulpit serving as pastor Sunday morning. Okay. And Monday morning, I was driving to Little Rock to go to a, a conference for VA. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was. I, I am. Amazed, I haven't ended up doing more damage than, than what I have. But it has been the the um, memory still plagues me, uh, especially really? short term. Yeah, it's uh, and and um, finding words still really? still sometimes uh, it's not nearly as bad as what it was. Uh-huh. And I think for the most part, uh, when I'm talking. My family sometimes will notice it, but 
for the most part, others don't notice it so much. Uh-huh. So, but yeah, that was that was the most recent set of strokes, and and we're we're keeping everything we have two of crossed to make sure we don't have. <laughs> don't need more. Don't Definitely. want any more. No, yeah. no. Because that was the deal for me was the first. I've called it three because it may be more than that, but whatever happened, I was able to get back up and running by the next week. I was just thinking about all the things I needed to do. This was in September, and I was absolutely thinking, I can get back there. I can do it. I didn't have any motor function loss, any of that stuff. And so I did that, and then I just figured out that on October 25th, I had another one, and that was the one that laid me down, you know. And it was like, you know, it's like three aren't enough, but number four was the one that got me and was the one that, like, made it impossible for me to walk. Yeah. You know. Well, that, you know, I think back, and and the the first stroke I had was mm, not long after... I'd say within a year or so of when we lost American Green Holder. Um, I I had, after we lost American Green Holdings, I ended up having to go to the VA for health care. Yeah. And uh, that's when they hit me with the diagnosis of diabetes, which uh-huh. I did not know I had. Uh-huh. Uh, ironically, Russ had begun needling me about getting checked for diabetes. Really? While we were still doing American Green Holdings. That's funny. And I kept, because he's such a hypochondriac <laughs> and was constantly looking at everything in his life as <laughs> symptoms. So, but uh, it was Father's Day and I had gone up to mom and dad's with my daughters. Uh huh. And mom had fixed, of course, a way over the top meal. Uh huh. And as was my want, I ate way over the top. And so having just gotten that diagnosis of diabetes, I knew I had eaten some things that I really shouldn't have. Yeah. And my daughters and I got in the car and we headed home. And that's about a two-hour drive from where they used to live. Uh-huh. And I began to have symptoms of what I, I could only assume was high blood sugar. Uh-huh. And I thought, okay, this is, I know what low blood sugar is. Obviously, this is, I'm feeling high blood sugar. Uh-huh. I later found out that that wasn't the case. <laughs> and what was uh, it? It was a stroke. Okay. And it was, I was, I was driving. <laughs> and Kelly, my oldest, didn't have her driver's license yet. And of course, Jesse wasn't old enough to drive anyway. So, all I could do was focus on the license plate of the vehicle in front of me. Really? To keep myself on the road. Wow. Thought process was gone. I, I could not, I, I couldn't think clearly enough to say, pull the car over and call for help. Huh. Uh, I remember the kids were terrified. Uh, I had told Kelly at one point to uh, slap me in the arm as hard as she could because I, I just I needed pain to focus on. Oh, jeez. And we got home, and I got out of the car, and I mean, I was just 
soaked with sweat. I mean, it, it literally, the car seat, the, the back of the seat was wet from uh -huh. me sweating through. And, and I thought, again, blood sugar. I went to bed. Uh -huh. I slept for about 14 hours. Uh, and, and actually, I didn't even get checked out. I just, really? the next day I just went back to work. Really? Um, and then probably two years later, uh -huh. I had a similar situation, but there was no blood sugar issue going on. Uh -huh. And, and I remember not being able to speak. Um, I was at work and had a, a young man came and I said, I, I need help. Huh. Just, just get me to my car. It's really hard for guys to ask for help. Isn't oh, it? I, and, and it was so bad because, as you know, there are times when, especially if I am on mission, I can perhaps to some people be a little intimidating. <laughs> and uh, this, this young guy... He did what I told him to do. I said, get, just get me to my car. Uh -huh. And he got me to my car, and I got in my car, and I drove home. Uh -huh. Well, when our, our boss found out that he had not stopped me, <laughs> they began to chew him out, and he just looked at him and said, but it was Rob. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, and I, I, to this day, I do not remember the drive home. I remember oh. getting in my car. And I remember being home. Oh, jeez. Nothing in between. And I called, I called my primary care team at the VA, uh -huh. left them a message, and then I went to bed. And I slept for about 14 hours. I woke up the next morning, and on my cell phone, there were literally a dozen messages uh -huh. from my nurse. Rob, get to the ER. Get to, just go to the <laughs> ER now. And just over and over, call us back, tell us you're going to the ER. And so the next morning, I called her back and said, I'm, I'm feeling fine. And she and she jumped into me and said, get to the ER now. So we went to Fayetteville to the, to the VA ER, which she told me to go to the nearest ER. And I said, no, because like, like so many people, uh, I was more afraid of the debt of uh, going to the ER sure. than I was of dying. Really? I, I, I couldn't handle the bills. That's crazy. So I went. On, I drove from Joplin to Fayetteville to go to an ER. Yeah. And it was, it was great. I mean, I, I love the folks down there because she called ahead, and the minute I walked in the door and checked my name in, they didn't say, have a seat. <laughs> they said, come with us. And they got me around to the back, and they, they brought in a mobile CAT scan, and, I mean, they they started going. And, and I still look back and laugh at myself because the ER doctor starts telling me about all these different tests they're going to do, and he's explaining how I've had this mini stroke and, and what he thinks we need to do. And, and I looked at him, and I said, so I need to come back tomorrow. <laughs> he says... No, 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 no. You're staying right here. Uh -huh. And so I spent about four days in the hospital in Fayetteville. Uh -huh. and, and, and it was one of those deals where I did not realize 
You don't realize how bad you are uh-huh. until you begin to get better. And it was like the next day after being in the hospital, I was like, oh my gosh, I feel so much better. Uh-huh. And I thought, okay, I'm ready to go home now. And they're like, no, no. And then the next day I woke up and I was like, wow, I feel so much better. <laughs> and that was when I really realized, man, I must have been really not good. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's scary. It is scary, that's for sure. Well, it's definitely wild to see, you know, because I think that, frankly, I could have easily had had the first stroke and then just chalked it all up to whatever and yeah. just moved on. Yeah, it really is. It's it's uh, especially if you don't have what they consider to be the classic uh, signs. Uh-huh. Know, like you know, maybe you know, I yeah, I don't, I don't. Well, the second one, I definitely had. Some of my left side, my I couldn't get my left leg to work, and uh-huh. yeah, that was kind of the one that I made never me call had in. That. Yeah. that was weird. That Other was then when I had the fourth one, I definitely had trouble walking, but it still was not the classic way of doing that. Right, right, and uh, you know, uh, even even that last one I had uh, when they took me to to Springfield, um, the, you know, the doctor was said, "You have had a stroke. There is no doubt in my mind," and I said. <laughs> Okay, you know I'm I'm not going to argue with you about this, we, which we my wife and I kind of laughed the fact that I wasn't arguing with anybody. She said that's how I knew how sick you were. <laughs> so, but it is um, it is definitely a life altering kind of experience. I think it's one of those you know things like stroke or or heart attack or, or you know, things like that are definitely those places where. We begin to realize we are no longer invulnerable. Uh-huh. Superman has left the building. <laughs> well, and you know, for me, I would like to hear you talk about your depression and how that affected you as well. Well, depression has become something that I have learned a lot about. Um, and of course, I didn't learn anything about it until somebody hit me with the diagnosis. Okay. Um, after we lost American Green Holdings, I remember uh, going in to one of my regular doctor visits. Uh, you know, my first one is when they hit me with the, the diabetes diagnosis, and, uh-huh. and that, that threw me for a loop, and so they were kind of monitoring me pretty closely. Uh-huh. And at one point, I remember going in, and um, my, my wife had been concerned about me being depressed and wanted me to talk to somebody about it and I didn't really think I was I, I didn't think I was suffering from depression I said you know we just lost lost a company I yeah. invested so much in you know physically emotionally uh-huh. it was um, and uh, I thought I, I should be down uh-huh. but I said I would talk to somebody so I went in and I, I was talking to what they they have a, a mental health primary care person, and she sat down and she looked at me and she she asked me some screening questions. And the first one was, if you could do anything, anything in the world right now for fun, uh-huh. what would it be? 
And she asked me that question, and uh, I guess I just gave her the blankest look because she kind of half smiled, which aggravated me a little bit. <laughs> and and I sat there for a few minutes, and I, I remember looking around her office and thinking, oh, my God, there's, there's nothing. Uh-huh. Nothing sounds like fun. Uh-huh. And... She pretty much was like, by the look on your face when I asked that question, I, you're suffering from depression. Wow. And, I, and, and of course, I was like, well, what's, you know, I told her some of what was going on. And, you know, there's a difference between grief, right. which is just a natural process, versus depression. Mm-hmm. And when I met, I met with a psychiatrist, and um, he was, I believe, a, a very uh, capable psychiatrist. And he, he set me on a course of antidepressants. Uh-huh. And I remember saying, well, how long do I have to take these? Uh-huh. And he said, most of my patients never want to go off of them uh-huh. because they never want to get back to where they were. And I said, well, no, I don't want to get back to where I was, but you know, surely there's got to be things that I can do sure. to, to be better. And he says, well, would you like talk therapy? And I said, I don't want to be here. <laughs> Why would I want to do more? Uh, not uh, not understanding all the things that go along with real evidence based therapies. Uh-huh. Um, and so as as I began to take the medications and and things began to change and, and I began to uh, understand that depression is it's a disease process. It's uh-huh. Mental illness is, is not different than cancer or heart disease or high blood pressure or diabetes. It's a disease process. And it's really hard to see. It is. It's, it's, it's oftentimes, you know, there, there's, there are some tests for it now, but there didn't used to be. Uh-huh. Um, and it's sad, I, I, still to this day, I'll hear people say, oh, well, there's no such thing as depression. You're just down. Go take a walk in the sunshine. It's like, uh-huh. No. That is not how it works. Um, they're, they're literally, when you start talking about truly chronic depression, there's a chemical change in the brain. Uh-huh. And, and sometimes it requires medication. I have learned um, through my own process that there are things I can do to help me be better. Um, and there are things I can do that make me worse. You know, I, I've stumbled into that trap more than once. Um, but, you know, as, as I really began to to look at and understand some of the things about depression, I was able to even go back, you know, at times when I was in the service and maybe even beyond where I would get to a place where I literally felt dead inside there was no feeling uh-huh. and I would do things whether it was take a razor blade and cut across my forearm or drink myself into oblivion or just do something something that would hurt me uh-huh. and I would do those things because feeling pain was feeling something okay. and it was Better than the absence of feeling. Huh. That goes back to when. 
How far back? It was it was really in the army that I remember. Um, I would uh, I was I was newly married, and uh, there were times when I would I, I was stationed at the Pentagon. It's not like I was in a combat zone or, or anything like that, but it was. Uh, I would I would literally get to the point that I just could not feel anything. Huh. And whenever that happened, I would I would take. Uh, I was in photography. We had razor blades for cutting film and trimming tape and things like that. And uh-huh. I would just take the razor blades and just just go across my between my elbow and my wrist. I would just cut little, not real deep. It was just enough to draw blood, just to feel, uh-huh. just to feel. Huh. And um, and then I would try to hide it by keeping my sleeves down over it. Uh-huh. Um, and at that time, you know. Nobody I worked with knew what depression was. Nobody, my, nobody my, knew. my wife didn't know really what depression was. So nobody said, everybody just looked at me and stop that. You know, you're being yeah. a dumbass. Don't do yeah. that. Uh-huh. And, and to a large degree, I thought that I was just being a dumbass. <laughs> I accepted that. Um, but as, as I got the actual diagnosis and began to learn about those those feelings of apathy and the times throughout my life when I was doing things to make myself feel anything. Uh-huh. And then, you know, came to realize that that's all part of depression. Right. Um, and, and one of the hardest, yet also, I think, most important things I did was I opened up and told my kids. Okay. Because. When was that? You know, from the first time I saw the psychiatrist, uh-huh. I told my kids what was going on. Okay. I wanted them to know that I was seeing a psychiatrist, uh-huh. that things were not good, but that I was getting help. Uh-huh. And that sometimes we all need help. Uh-huh. Especially as I began to learn more and more about depression and to know that it can be, uh, there's a genetic component oftentimes that it can uh-huh. be, and, and found out, found out, you know, my father had been, had suffered from depression. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, my father, unbeknownst to me in a lot of ways, had suffered from depression most of my life, I think, uh, ever since... Th- Probably even before we lost my brother, um, he had he had suffered terribly from depression, and when after I had left home, he had actually uh, became there was there was a couple times where he became suicidal. Okay. Um, I I had uh, at one time I, I battled that demon myself. Okay. I remember when was that that was actually. Oh, it was in my probably in my my early twenties. Okay. I remember uh, had a pistol, had it sitting there, and I I was done. I, I didn't I didn't think that there was any point to going on, uh-huh. and quite honestly. The thing that kept me from pulling the trigger 
was I could not find the words to explain to my parents that it wasn't their fault. Uh-huh. And so that was it. That was the thing that kept you from doing it. Yeah. Because because I had I had a younger brother. Uh-huh. And uh, Stevie died when he was six months old. Oh, wow. And when Stevie died, my father literally keeled over. They had to bring out a defibrillator and restart his heart. Oh, wow. And I, I, I knew, even though I didn't really understand depression or anything like that when I was a kid, I knew we didn't really talk much about Stevie. There was a lot of things that just... Uh, my dad couldn't do, sure. And uh, that was something that I that I knew that my death would affect him terribly. Yeah. And and I just wanted if if I could have uh, if I could have found words that, that would have not helped at all. I, you know, I, I yeah I realize, yeah. but I I just I know. That was the thing. It, it was no longer that I, I didn't have a problem doing it to myself. Uh-huh. I couldn't do that to him, and to mom. And uh, that was that was kind of the moment I remember putting the pistol away and going, you know, there's, there's no way. I could do that to them. Uh, so yeah, that that actually is what saved my life. Wow. Um, but you know there there has there have been a lot of times even once I once I began to understand the depression um, as a disease uh-huh. and the fact that anxiety is is kind of the the other side of the same coin right um, you know there's there have been a lot of times that. I'll still have bouts where it gets really bad. Uh-huh. Um, and thankfully, I know I now know tools uh-huh. and things that I can do. Um, that doesn't mean that it goes away uh-huh. by any stretch. And I and I do do still take medication. Uh-huh. Um, but one of the things that that I have learned and thankfully have been able to help others who also suffer from depression and anxiety, they can learn ways to lessen the symptoms, to recognize. What are they? Well, for me, one of the big things that has always been really... It used to be I was either doing okay or I was borderline crisis. Uh I always looked at my depression as a downward spiral. Uh-huh. And I was, like I said, I was either okay or I was in the dumper. Uh-huh. What I went through what's called wellness recovery action planning, which is done through the Copeland Center. Okay. And uh, I, I learned to be a facilitator on this, and actually now I use the SAMHSA protocols for what they call a wellness action plan. Okay. And one of the I don't know what that means. So tell a, me what a well means. a wellness action plan uh, is recognizing that we can take actions 
that make us feel better, uh -huh. that help us to be well. Sure. One of the first things we have to, number one, sit back and really ask uh -huh. is, what do I look like when I'm well? So, Dale, I'm going to ask you right now. Okay. What do you look like when you're well? Well, I'm happy and chipper, and, you know, I, I can walk better than I can now. <laughs> and, you know, there are a lot of things that I would say, you know, I'm still getting back to that point. But, you know, you're also reading and learning, and I don't know what else to say, but those would be the top of the list. But... And, and that's and that's great, you know. As you as you can look at that. So, here's one of the things that I especially find with with the veteran population uh -huh. that I work with uh -huh. is oftentimes when that first question gets asked, and it was the same response I had when someone asked me, uh -huh. "What do you look like when you're well?" The first thing that popped into my head was, "When the hell was that? <laughs> How far back do I have to go?" <laughs> Well, so let's ask that question. How far back would you have to go? I, I really, in a lot of ways, I change the question now, especially for the people that I work with. And I say, what do you look like right now when you're at your best? And then they can kind of, it's kind of like taking a chip at, 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 at the ice. It's like we're going to knock off a little piece. Uh, and as we begin to see, well, you know, and, and quite honestly, for some of them, the, the answer has been, when I'm at my best, I don't want to kill myself. Wow. And you know, that's, that's huge. It's like, all right, that's the target we're shooting for. Yeah, there we go. Because if one of the first things you, I, I really believe you need to do in a wellness action plan is, is, is recognize what the target is. Mm -hmm. We're all... Yes, we're perfect when that's not a possibility. Right. Yeah. And, you know, we, it is... It is so easy for us to get down on ourselves. Yeah. You know, no one is harder on us than we are. Yeah. Um, and uh, we also, we can be our own best friend, but we try for some reason to be our own worst enemy a whole lot more often. Uh -huh. And and so as you as you go through a wellness action plan, one of that, those first things is to kind of get a baseline of, of what do I look like right now when I'm at my best? And then go through and make a list, and we call it a, a wellness toolbox, of anything you can think of, whether it's something you, you do on a regular basis, whether it's something you'd like to do, whether it's something you maybe want to try, uh -huh. and you make a list. And it should be exhaustive. I mean, it, it, you should hopefully come up with pages and pages and pages okay. of things that you can do that make you feel better. Okay. And then there's there's something, for lack of a better word, magical about the moment you write something down. Uh huh. Because then it's no longer an idea floating around in your head. Uh huh. It's been given a bit of a concrete reality. Right. And so once you do that, then you've got this list. And and so. As, as we go through the process, we, we begin to look at triggers. Okay. You know, what are the things that, that trigger your depression? Uh, especially for veterans, it could be, you know, the loss of a buddy. It can be an attack. It can be um, a sight, a smell, a sound, any number of things. And, and a lot of times just being able to identify some of those triggers 
we can't necessarily, we, we know they're going to happen. Uh, but if we can put together an action plan so that when that trigger happens, we have things we can do. Um, and it, it truly makes a big difference in, in how we, we deal with stuff. And, and sometimes it can be something really small. These don't need to be monumental things. I'll give you an example. I was, uh, as I said, I used to work with a nurse, and we'd go out in the field and, and see veterans in their homes. And I was, I was having a rough patch, and I was, I was kind of feeling like that spiral was beginning to, to come about. Uh-huh. And I remember telling, telling the nurses, you know, I got, I got to do something different. I, got, I'm, I feel myself getting into a rut. Uh-huh. I've got to do something different. You know, but we still had people we had to see, things sure. we had to do. Mm-hmm. The one thing I had control over was lunch. <laughs> and I said, we got to go someplace different. We got to go someplace weird. <laughs> um, we got to go someplace completely out of the ordinary. Uh-huh. I grabbed my phone. I Googled places near where I was and uh, a place came up and I was like, we've never been there. Let's go try it. <laughs> We walked in the door, and the, and the lady said, it is Hawaiian Taco Thursday. <laughs> and I remember saying, what is a Hawaiian taco? And she went through this list of ingredients, ahi tuna, mango, salsa, something, I don't know, uh-huh. feta cheese. I mean, just this, this whole list of stuff that was not on Rob's normal dietary <laughs> considerations. And I remember looking at her, and I said, that sounds awful bring me one. <laughs> and at that moment, it was about, I didn't care if it was the worst thing I ever ate or the best thing I ever ate. Uh-huh. It was going to be something that was going to occupy my mind in a different way. Uh-huh. I took a bite out of this stupid Hawaiian taco, uh-huh. and it was one of the best things I had ever eaten. Really? Oh, it was incredible. <laughs> and I remember, I, I was literally shocked. Because I was expecting it to be awful. And the rest of the afternoon, I was talking to the, to the nurse, and I said, I just, I can't believe how good that was. Uh-huh. And the more I focused on how good that was, uh-huh. I began to kind of get out of that rut. And, you know, so I didn't feel like I was spinning my wheels anymore. I had done something uh-huh. different, and it was good. And, you know, I honestly realized that it could have been the worst thing I could have ever put in my mouth. Uh-huh. And that would have helped me just as much. Because then I would have been going, oh, God, that was horrible, <laughs> awful. But my mind would have gotten off the circular track that it was on that was spiraling me down. Wow. And so, so sometimes it can be something incredibly simple. But, you know, as you go through these uh, wellness action plan um, you, you find those things that you know you have to do every day to stay at your best. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a big thing for me has always been, unless there's something really going on, I'm, I got to take a shower every day. If I don't take a shower, I don't feel good. Huh. And I know that. So, you know, unless, unless there's some real good reason for me not to, I got to take a shower every day. Take my medicine every day. Yeah. You know, there's, uh, several medications that I'm on that I have learned if I don't take them, things do not go well. Exactly. Um, you know, so there's 
there's there's a list of things that I know I need to do. And one of the things that we teach in a wellness action plan is say you, you start to have maybe some early warning signs. There's some things that, you know, maybe you've either begun to notice or somebody close to you has begun to notice that sure that uh, uh, and you know part of this is to look at what those early warning signs are. Right. And then to be able to step back and go, all right, maybe I need to review my my daily maintenance list. Am I doing all the things I said I need to do? For myself, I can almost guarantee there's one or two things that I've stopped doing. Okay. And it's like, okay, pick them back up, get them back on there, and and know to change them. And and it's a great it's a great thing. I've, I've had many guys and gals who I've worked with on this who, some of them, they have to review their plan weekly. Uh-huh. Some, it's just once in a while. Uh, others, I, I had one guy, he says, you know, I, I put that together in a three-ring binder, and it sits on the bookshelf in my living room. Uh-huh. And he says, all I have to do is look at that binder, uh-huh. and I remember all the promises I made to myself. Okay. Because I wrote them down. Sure. Because that's my contract with me. Mm-hmm. And that helps. And so, you know, a lot of times it can be, you know, from, from going through the early warning signs to when things are falling apart to um, when things are really, the wheels are coming off the train to crisis. Uh-huh. Uh, and up to and including, and this is something, a wellness action plan you can put together not just for, for mental health issues, but for physical health issues. Sure, yeah. You know, uh, you know hey, we've, we've both gone through stroke. <laughs> there are certain things that we can put down on that yeah. list that are like, you know, I really need to make sure I'm doing this, this, exactly. and this. Exactly, yeah. Um, and also to be able to step back and say, uh, one of the things we look at in the crisis portion of it is, uh, what hospital do I want to go to? <laughs> or is there a hospital... I do not want okay, to go to. Yeah. Is there a therapy or a treatment that has been helpful for me and I want to do that? Or are there some that were no benefit whatsoever and they just pissed me off and I don't want to do those? Sure. And you put those in the plan. Uh-huh. And you make sure that, that you know there's somebody there who's a supporter who is aware that if, heaven forbid, you're in a car accident or, or have a stroke or become incapacitated in some way that you can't Express your wishes. Yeah. You don't have to. You already have. There's also places in there to step back and say, you know what? If I've got to, if I have to step away, if, if for whatever reason I can't take care of my day-to-day stuff, uh-huh. who can I count on to step in to, to make sure the mail gets picked up, the, the bills get paid, the, you know, whatever mm-hmm. gets done? So I don't have to worry about those things. So all I can worry about is getting well. Yeah. And even to the point of sometimes being able to say, you know, there are certain people, whether they're family members or just in our circle, that say, you know what, I truly love this person, uh-huh. but don't tell them that I'm sick. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. We know some of those. We know some of those. And uh, because they may mean well, but they're just not helpful. Right. <laughs> um, you know, and it, it can be something simple. There's there's some folks who just, you know, myself. If I if I go down, I just kind of want it left somewhat quiet. But there's some people who may get onto a Facebook or a Twitter or something and be like, oh, you know, th- 
throw prayers. Rob's had this happen. It's like, you know, I didn't really want everybody to know yeah, my business. Exactly. So being able to pick those things out and, and let let people know what your wishes are. And then the post-crisis side of things. Once you've gone through a crisis, to be able to sit back and go, okay, what got us down that road? Uh-huh. And what can we change? You know, one of the things that uh, after the last stroke, the doctors were kind of like, look, At that time, uh, he said, you know, blood pressure is one of the things we look at, but your blood pressure was, was running good. Uh-huh. He said, uh, you know, from, from that where I was on the last stroke, I had lost about 100 pounds because I had that gastric sleeve done. Uh-huh. And uh, he says, yeah, you're still heavy, but you're better, and, you know, I'd encourage you to still lose some weight. But then on the other side is genetics, and there's just, you know, doesn't really matter. We haven't found a way to change genes yet. Huh. Um, so, understanding that you know some things are going to happen, and we can just do as much as possible to mitigate the bad stuff and focus on the good stuff. So that's what, kind of in a nutshell. You know, normally I think I've given in about ten or fifteen minutes what we normally go through about eight weeks of, <laughs> well, of working on to put together a okay, plan. Okay, so tell me what led you to the Army. <laughs> uh, you know, when I, was, when I was in high school, I was, uh, I had a learning disability. Okay. Um, I, was, I was ADHD, didn't know it. We nobody knew, knew it. Then. Nobody knew it then. <laughs> uh, actually, I think one of the things that I read about, they talked about at that point, they referred to it as, as, as brain damage. Really? Um, when, I was, when I was in school, I was always, we moved around a lot, but everywhere we went, I had some special classes. I had, there was, you know, uh-huh. I, I wasn't operating at the same place others were. Uh-huh. And uh, it became pretty clear to me that if I didn't want to uh, work on the railroad like what my father did, because college really wasn't a big option. Although, that's not true. I was not prepared at that time for college. Okay. Uh, my father at one point came to me and he said, if I could put you through school, what would you major in? And I very honestly looked at my father and said, partying. <laughs> and he said, all right, then we're not going to do that. <laughs> and, and it's funny, years later he came back and he says, I cannot thank you enough for that honest answer. Uh-huh. Because otherwise, I probably would have tried to put you through college. Right. And we both know at that time, it wouldn't have happened. <laughs> you know, eventually I went back, but I, you know, I went to the Army because there, there weren't a lot of options. And uh, I had actually gone and spoken to the Air Force. I was, I was wanting to join the Air Force. But they wanted me to uh, basically be a, a gate guard for a nuclear missile silo and that did not seem like the way I wanted to spend any amount of time. <laughs> okay. And when I went and spoke to the Army recruiters and, and I went up to the MEP station, they showed me this, this great film, which was a complete fabrication <laughs> of, of what a Army photographer's life was. Okay. And it showed a guy running around in Class B's taking pictures of girls playing softball. <laughs> that was a job I felt I could get behind. Yeah, definitely. I got to my advanced training and... Uh, one of the instructors says, how many of you saw that video at the <laughs> upstage? And we all raised our hands. And he says, 
It's a lie. Your job <laughs> is combat photographer. Your job is basically we line up all the infantry, we give them rifles, and then we give you a 35-millimeter camera. <laughs> and it was like, I may have made a mistake here. But oddly enough, the Army was the first place I learned that I could learn. Okay. It was because I, I really became fascinated with photography. I loved the art and the science and the way they melded together with the light and the uh, chemicals and all these different things. Yeah. And, um, this is back when it wasn't on your phone. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I, I kind of got out of photography when, uh, when computers began to take over with it because I just, I loved the, the old, uh, the, the process with the film and the, the burning and the dodging and, and the dark room and all this. I loved the lab work. And then all of a sudden, lab work was was irrelevant. Yeah. Um, you know, guys could do something with two clicks of a mouse that used to take me hours to get down in the dark room with uh -huh. trial and error and uh, burning and dodging and all this, you know, the, the fun Ansel Adams stuff that I <laughs> learned. And um, So, yeah, getting into the Army, basically for me, a big thing was it was the only shot I felt I had of the future. Really? Um because I, I did not want to, uh, didn't want to go to work for the railroad in Parsons, Kansas. Okay. So that was that. Was that. Now, talk about what has led you to the ministry. How did that get started? <laughs> I, uh, I started, I remember uh, I, was, I was sitting at a church with my mom it was it was the church that they had gone to for years it was a church i had actually been baptized in even though i'd never lived in that town it was trinity united methodist church in appleton city missouri okay and i remember one day the pastor was asking he was doing an altar call and he said anybody who you know you want to come forward and profess your faith just come on down and i remember sitting there and we were literally on the back row and it was weird because that was not normally where mom sat. Uh -huh. But we're sitting on the back row, so there's there's no one behind us. Uh -huh. And I remember thinking to myself, you believe. You believe in Christ. You believe in God. You, you believe in church. Why can't you get up and walk down to the altar call? And Dale... It was every bit as clear as if I was to reach out and smack you in the back of the head. Uh -huh. I felt a dope slap in the back of my head so profoundly that I spun around to see who was behind me, knowing there was no one there. <laughs> and I heard a voice that said, because you're chicken, boy. And, I mean, that froze me to my core. Because I realized it was true. Uh -huh. For me to get up in front of everybody else and admit that was something I wasn't ready to do. And that, that bothered me. Uh -huh. And I began began to explore my faith more deeply. And okay. uh, When was this? Was this Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. No, this okay. was... Uh, this was... Well, 20... 
24 years ago. 24 okay. years ago. Awesome. And uh, began to explore my faith, and, and uh, we moved to Joplin, and uh, we, we started going to church. And we actually started mainly because of the kids. Uh, we wanted them to be raised in church. Uh-huh. And, and honestly, my wife and I... Your wife, Tammy? Yeah, my wife, Tammy, and I, we would drop the kids off sometimes for uh, children's church and Sunday school just so we could have 20 minutes to go have breakfast or something <laughs> without the kids. So we use it as babysitters. But um, I remember one day I was there in church and the pastor was given a, a message about, um, about David and Bathsheba. Okay, that's a good one. And I remember that moment when he talked about all the things that David did trying to cover up right. his affair with Bathsheba. And that even after that first child died... God still accepted David back. Right. And 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 man, it was just like God reached down and grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and kind of rattled me. And, and I remember sitting there thinking, if, if God can accept that, he can accept all my mistakes. Uh-huh. And, and then about the time we started AGH, um, I, I, as a matter of fact, you may remember this. You probably do because you have that ridiculous memory. Um, <laughs> I, read, I read Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Church. I remember that, sure. Because it was listed, I think by Time Magazine or something, uh-huh. as, as one of the best books for entrepreneurs, especially if you were faith-based. Uh-huh. And I thought, man, this is, this is exactly what me and Dale have been talking about. <laughs> and, and I remember reading that book, and it's, it staggered me. It was like... All of a sudden, I realized I hadn't even been being a church member right, uh-huh. which was funny because I was like, wait a minute, I, I've been screwing this up for years. <laughs> I, I'm way off base. Um, but I read that and, you know, as it talked about you know, being a part of the core and really understanding what your church is about and, and all these different things, and it, and it just moved me tremendously. And so I began to, I became a, uh, in the Methodist church, we have what they call certified lay speakers. Uh-huh. And I was asked to fill a pulpit one Sunday. And uh, I still remember the, it was right after my grandmother's 90th birthday. And she was always just such a a faithful woman. And I remember giving my sermon over a life well lived about how all the things that she did. Uh And then eventually I I was asked to become a pastor at the church where I still pastor. Uh-huh. Um, there had been three of us that would kind of rotate through, kind of taking the old Methodist circuit rider concept uh-huh. we were trying to do. And uh, the folks at, at Wanda, one day they came to me and they said, you know, you're you're just kind of like us. You're just kind of plain spoken. And uh-huh. uh, we'd, we'd really like it if you'd be our, our main pastor. Wow. And I... I thought about it. It was it was interesting because one of the things that as I began as a certified lay speaker and as I began getting that that ministry rolled down was I had to understand that it could not be about me. Yes. I've I've known more than a few pastors who 
to a degree get bit by the limelight, even you know, even at a small church, it can sure. be. Sure. Um, Doesn't take very many. No. And and I thought I can't. I can't do that. I've got to make sure. If I'm doing it in church, it is not about Rob. Yeah. And uh, as a matter of fact, you know, as in a little country church, our church is 182 years old. Uh-huh. And, I mean, we don't even have a town. <laughs> it's literally between two very small towns uh, outside of another small town. I mean, there's not much to draw from. Yeah. But... Over the years that I've been there, it's 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 steadily grown, uh-huh. and we have this beautiful candlelight service on Christmas Eve that uh-huh. I love. I mean, I just adore doing this service. Tell me about it. What is it? What's the deal? It's pretty much traditional Methodist. You know, we we uh, uh, sing Christmas songs, uh, kind of along with the scriptures, and read uh-huh. the read the story of, of Christmas out of the Bible and um, I give a short message and of course we we circle around the church the sanctuary and sing uh, Silent Night and begin lighting candles and when I first started uh, when I first started there was there were several Christmas Eves where we could maybe just about get enough people to circle around the front pew uh-huh. uh, now it's become a Christmas tradition for a lot of a lot of folks in that area who sure. may have a regular church they go to that it doesn't do a Christmas Eve deal. Sure. So they come with us, and uh-huh. and we have become their Christmas tradition. That's awesome. And one of the, one my very first Christmas Eve there, <laughs> I thought it's Christmas Eve, I should dress up, uh-huh. so I put on a jacket and a tie. And. There was this lovely older lady who was there and sitting in the same place she sat every Sunday. And I leaned over and I said hello to her and she just ignored me. <laughs> and I thought, wow, what have I done to upset her? <laughs> did our service and did everything. And the next Sunday I said, you know, I'm really sorry. Did I do something to upset you? And she says, No. We've just had so many pastors filter through. I saw you in a jacket and tie. I didn't recognize you. thought you were just another new one coming in. <laughs> and right then and there, I said, that's the last time I wear a jacket and tie. <laughs> and uh, and it was the last time I wore a jacket and tie in there. Uh-huh. And uh, But it's just been this amazing, um, you know, it's just this little country church. And the feeling when we when we get into the singing and the telling of the, of the Christmas story. It's one of those times when you just feel the presence of God. Okay. Because everybody is, is right there and on the same page. And it may just be for an hour or two. But for that hour or two, they're not thinking about gifts. Yeah. They're not thinking about outside world it, it truly becomes a sanctuary sure and uh, I, I I firmly believe that has absolutely nothing to do with me <laughs> it has everything to do with what God wants done and the attitude of worship 
is just so powerful. And, you know, that's one of the things that I had to deal with since the stroke was that I realized there are all these things I want to do, and I just wanted to tell all these crazy parts about my story, and that may end up being something I eventually do because I've had a crazy story. <laughs> but then I finally realized, stop thinking about yourself. Stop thinking about what you want to do. And I really started to realize how many people I could reach just by talking to them in this kind of environment, you know, just in terms of the people that have been, you know, served their communities well and everything else and never get interviewed, you know? Well, yeah, and that's, you know, we actually, there's a, uh, a new program in the VA called My Story, My Life. Uh-huh. And, and a big part of it is about, you know, helping veterans give voice to their lives. Yeah. And I think that's something that, uh, you know, the, the VA often well-earned gets a bad rap in a lot of things. <laughs> but there's a lot of things it does right. Sure. Um, and, and one of the things that I have you know, seen, whether it's with, with veterans I'm working with or with people in my church I'm working with or just, just people in general, um, we, we oftentimes get so wrapped up in what the world wants us to look at. Yes. That we forget why we're here. Yeah. And that's one of those things, you know, like I said, uh, I, I had to make sure when I became a pastor that it was never about me. Yeah. And I even I've had a couple times when, as the church has grown, I've had people come up and kind of you know, put their arm around me and say, you know, this, you know, look out at this. This is all because of you. And I'm like, no, no. And and I have literally from the pulpit said the first time, I tell you, that. Our growth or something good that's happening here is is because of me. You should go ahead and tar and feather me and run me out on a rail and just not ever let me back in the doors, because I know that that can't can't be what it's about. Well, because to me that's the thing that I just kept coming back to is I tried to do all this stuff and I did it so very wrong, you know. And it was like a lot of the time I've you know actually given a lot of thought to what I need to be doing, but it's so easy to just decide that it's your will that's getting done. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I Part of the message I gave this morning, we were talking about... Uh, we were talking about how I know that when I'm struggling with something, uh-huh. I can go to the Bible... And I can read scripture, and I can study the word, and I can find the right answer. Uh The problem is, although I have this knowledge, I also have a will of my own. Uh And oftentimes, I will put off going to where I know the answer is, Uh because I know I'm not going to like the answer I'm given. (laughs) And so I struggle through, and I try, even now, Sometimes to do things my way. Oh yeah. Um, fortunately, not so much with the church. It's it's kind of Sunday Sunday mornings as a pastor have literally become the one of one of the greatest things in my life. Okay. Um, you know when I when I go in to deliver a message, 
Um, it is me surrendering control. Okay. It is me, because I don't write down a sermon. No. I can't. I can I can write out a sermon and I can I can write reasonably well. Uh-huh. I can write things that make sense. But if I go and try to read what I wrote, uh-huh. and I guess it kind of goes back to that ADHD brain because one thing sparks another and it just kind of goes off uh-huh. in its own. Then if I try to come back to where I was in the written remarks, I inevitably screw it up. I've tried several times and it's just like I can't do it. But uh-huh. when I go up. And and it's it's through it's through scriptural study, it's through prayerful study, it's through meditations and just kinda opening myself up to the spirit. When I when I give my sermon, there's a lot of times I'm not sure where we're going. Right. And you know, but all the years I've been doing this now, I don't get lost. Mm-hmm. I don't fumble through. And it's awesome. One of the funnest things, Dale, is I'll start. And as I'm going through and I'm doing this sermon and I'll get to the end and I'll kind of step back and go, huh, that was a pretty cool message. <laughs> and I realize a lot, 90, 99% of the time, the message was the one I had to hear. Yeah. And I'll always have somebody come up and go, man, it was like you were just talking right to me. And I'm like, trust me, you were not on my mind when that message began. Yeah. Um, but that's just, it's, it's, uh, it's to me one of the most beautiful things about when I, when I do it. And I know most pastors don't do it that way. And I'm not saying, uh, believe me, I am not trying to say, well, all pastors should just walk up and just open themselves <laughs> up to the Spirit and let it roll. Yeah. Um, but that's what it has been for me. And and it has... There is something truly freeing in opening yourself up and letting it just... Just let the message take control. Yeah. And it's one of those things that if we could learn to do it in our own lives... And you did notice I used the word we. Um, and the day-to-day stuff to just let go. And you know, I know it's cliche, let go, let God. Uh-huh. But it's real. Oh, yeah. When we let go, and, and I know I have been so guilty of standing there and saying, God, take this from me. And you can almost hear the echo of him saying, sure, let go first. Yeah, exactly. You know, because you are, you're, you're hanging on to that even tighter. You think about the things that we did in AGH, and I just feel like we did so much wrong, you know, just in the ways that we were so inept at thinking of what we needed to do and being a good leader and stepping out of the way. Yeah. I mean, there are some crazy stories that we could tell that are not going to be told right now because I realize that this is a different, you know, number one, you don't want to hurt the people that it would hurt and everything else. But, you know, ultimately, this is about, you know, our journey is my journey from having a stroke. It's not about what we did 
you know, incredibly wrong half a dozen, half a decade ago, or more than that, two decades ago, however long that was, decade and a half ago. You know, and I'm 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 reminded of of one of the mistakes that I made, and there were many, uh-huh. but one that I think. And I never really thought about this until as we're sitting here having this conversation. Uh-huh. I put an inordinate amount of stress on you. Because I realized one of the things that I used to say quite often uh-huh. was in Dale We Trust. <laughs> and oh, please don't. No, no, but I, I got I got to thinking about that. And I, you know what? That really was an unrealistic <laughs> thing to try and throw on him. But I also know at the same time, we both, well, I think all of us thought we were all supermen and we could you know, single-handedly lasso the moon and yeah. uh, well, turns and, you out know, we could. You look at all the things that we did and I just believe they were so, they were so trusting in ourselves and not in anything a close to a process that I guess where we wanted to go. Yeah. And then we also fell in the middle of the 2008 crisis and everything else. I yeah, mean, yeah. You know, but I look back at it and I'm like, no wonder you've been in this for 13 years, you know. Because the part of my story that I like to tell here is that in 2006, at the beginning, before there was an AGH and everything else, I went and I was at the, the the little church thing that I like to go to in Georgia mm-hmm. called Fountain Campground. And I remember so specifically, I went up there and somebody started talking about it. It was a preacher named Pierce Norman who died like less than a year later. And Pierce said, when you give your life to God, and I thought to myself, I don't even know what that means. I don't even have a clue of what that means. But what I was thinking of that time was if I, you know, if that's something I can do, I want to do that. Having no idea what a wild ride it would be and how many (laughs) different things would come crashing down, you know, in the next 13 years. But then once I realized like how far I'd gotten out of that and how far I'd gotten into just trying to squeeze the life out of everything. That was the point when that I realized that there's some stuff you need to learn and you need to get back to not stressing yourself out so completely and get into God's will for your life, not your will. And that's why I'm here and we're having this conversation is just realizing like how bad a job I did of that in the last 13 years. <laughs> you know, w- one of the things that... Um scripturally profoundly changed me uh you know and, and it's funny I'm, I'm sure you've experienced this you, you doesn't matter how many times you read a piece of scripture oh yeah there's it, something, new, to there's something yeah. new that it'll give you when you need it and and i remember several years ago now uh, i was studying about john the baptist and there was a phrase that he said that he must become less so Christ could become more. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I realized that's not just a statement for the world. 
that's a statement for me mm-hmm. that I need to be less Rob uh-huh. and and more Christ and and realizing that I fall short every day mm-hmm. but there's a big difference between trying and falling short and not trying at all sure because every time I fall short I Maybe fall a little bit closer to the goal. Yeah. Uh, it's still going to be short. but Falling it's towards the goal line. <laughs> fall, fall towards the goal line, absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, as, as I've taken on this job that I have now as a peer support specialist, uh, one of the things that has moved me a lot, and, and another veteran actually asked me this one time, he said, you know, as a peer support specialist, one of the first things you have to have is a mental health or substance use disorder diagnosis. So it's a job. Oh, wow. Ironically, you can't have this job. You know, you, you've heard the old saying, you don't have to be crazy to work here. <laughs> oh, wait. Actually, I do. It, it's part of the job requirement. Uh, you have to have a diagnosis, and you have to be in recovery. Uh-huh. And, and understanding that recovery doesn't mean miraculously healed. It means, you know, in recovery, I've, I've got a lot of things that, that I've got to work on, but I've worked through enough that I can help others to work uh-huh. on their own. Sure. And, uh, you know, I, I had a veteran one time who said, you know, did you ever sit back and ask yourself why God put you through the thing he's put you through? Uh-huh. And, you know, for one of the very few times I had this clear answer that came to my head. And it was, I had to go through what I had to go through so I can help others who are going through the same thing. Yeah. And I had a, a beautiful moment today where uh, uh, an older gentleman at, at my church came up and he, he was talking about how this time of year can be so bad for people who deal with depression. And he said that I, as his pastor, have helped him acknowledge his depression and work through it. Uh-huh. And you know, one of the first things he said was knowing that someone else is dealing with this. One of the scary things I think, Dale, for all of us is that we all think we live in a bubble. Uh-huh. And that whatever I'm going through, you can't possibly understand because you're not going through it. Oh, yeah. You know, but here we, we're sitting here on this couch right now, two stroke survivors. <laughs> and uh, two, two amazing eight, stroke yeah, survivors. And two AGH survivors. <laughs> but also, uh, you know. Those two alone should, yeah. should say there's Definitely. obviously a bigger plan than what we yes, think we have. I know. So, you know, having having that and knowing that sometimes sometimes we go through hell for the sole purpose of being able to be there to help somebody else get through it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you know, it sucks. <laughs> and but, and just like not realizing how far you've gotten away from it? How far yeah. you've gotten away from that goal? Yeah. I I honestly think one of you know when when we lost AGH, uh-huh. um, and then and then I went almost a year and a half before I got another job. Uh-huh. You know I did odd jobs and things. Sure. Um, because you know as the economy had crashed and and I remember I applied, I applied for. Every freaking job 
everything from manual labor to the truck driver. The, the mistake I made, oddly enough, was, and I never thought this would have been a mistake, but at the time it was, I put my education on my resume. Uh-huh. And I would call people up, and they were like, you don't want this job. You have a master's degree. You'll get bored. Uh-huh. And I'm like, no, I'm bored sitting at home. <laughs> I want to do something. And actually got me into substitute teaching. Okay. And, uh, you know, working working with kids. And uh, I, that was a amazing blessing. And in a lot of ways... I'm still just realizing what some of that was. Uh-huh. Um, had a had a young man. I can't even remember. I I posted something on Facebook, something that was almost a throwaway comment at first. That you know, kind of like you know, give me a memory of me or something, sure. something weird yeah. like that. And this young man who is himself a father now, and he's out of school and he's working and um, he posted on my on my Facebook page on my timeline about uh-huh. some things that I had said to him when he was in high school uh-huh. about believing in him that he was more than what he realized and and he said how much that meant to him and I thought man that was not the impact <laughs> I thought I was getting I was expecting a bunch of smart like comments sure and then boom and it was great because several people came on afterwards and they're like, well, there you go, Rob. That, that should be enough right there. I'm like, yeah, by God, that was more than more than enough, more than I ever expected. But Well, so then when we were doing the AJH thing, there were a couple people that came across our path, more you than me and then more me than you. But tell me about the things that led us to Dennis Weaver. Oh, wow. Well, Dennis was actually before... AGH. He was actually, um, <laughs> he was, he was from, he, he was from Joplin. Joplin. He was born in Joplin. Um, uh, him and, him and, uh, him and his wife, Jerry, Jerry. met in Joplin. Yeah. Dennis, Dennis graduated from what at the time was called Joplin Junior College, uh-huh. which eventually became Missouri Southern. And I met Dennis. Um, he had come up with a word. <laughs> called Ecolonomics. Uh-huh. And it was it was taking ecology and economics and putting them together. Uh-huh. The ideas of sustainable natural resources. Sure. And uh, Dennis, they started a certificate program at Missouri Southern, and I was one of the first people to earn it. And I, as I got into it, I thought, this, this is just the way we should do things. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's about, you know, being mindful of the resources we have, sure, but still being able to make a profit. Yeah. Um, and Dennis actually came to Missouri Southern. We we uh, our our group of of students who were studying for this certificate. Uh, we were going to meet with them, and a lot of them didn't know they were traditional students. They didn't know who Dennis was. Sure. Me being a little bit of a non-traditional student, I knew who Dennis Weaver was. Uh, more from more from a cloud than gun smoke. Because right. I, I, I always remember that great scene in the opening where he's on that horse in the middle of New York City and it's rearing back. Uh-huh. And uh, 
found out that was an accident. That wasn't supposed to happen. <laughs> but it became uh, the iconic image of him. And uh, he came walking up to the restaurant, and I walked out and introduced myself. And he came in, and we got to talking about this Institute of Economics that he had started and all the things that he wanted to do. And um, I, I just became completely infatuated with this idea. Uh-huh. And uh, actually, Dennis went ahead and brought me in, hired me on as uh, the executive director for the Institute of Economics. And uh-huh. that's actually how um, it was, there was another guy up north who met and uh-huh. kind of got together with, with Russ. Peter, yeah. yeah, Peter. <laughs> and uh, we had, uh, before we started AGH, I had this road trip with, with Russ and Peter. Uh-huh. to San Diego for the Biodiesel Conference. <laughs> and, um, you know, we had... You know, Dennis was instrumental in, in, in all those things. And, you know, he loved Russ, and, and he had you know, loved Peter, and uh, we, we had you know, done several things together. And Russ and I ended up one, one morning in October... We were in Springfield, Missouri, and we went and we were hanging out on Willie's bus. Uh-huh. And you know, Dennis Dennis kind of did did some of the introductions and you know set it all up. And uh, we were talking to Willie about. I gave him a ball cap that had the Institute of Economics logo on it. <laughs> I, he's like, well, "What do you want me to do?" And I said, "Well, you know, just get the word out, let people know we exist and what's going on." But it was one of the funniest things because I remember we we're sitting on Willie's bus, and. Of course, Willie was doing what Willie does, and, uh-huh. and he offered some to me, and I, I turned it down. And, because I knew in my head there's this great opportunity that I could go back and tell my kids <laughs> never to talk to me about peer pressure <laughs> and marijuana. And I remember driving home, and as I was, I was driving back from Springfield to Joplin, I was just like, I just spent like two hours hanging out with Willie on the bus. And he had given me a, a chicken soup for the soul book that uh-huh. Mark Victor Hansen had given yeah. him. And uh, he had invited Russ and I down to uh, uh, a fundraiser at his ranch uh-huh. south of Austin for Kinky Friedman when he was running for governor. Right. And you know, I'm driving home and I'm thinking, this is just one of the coolest days ever. <laughs> and then I took a big whiff and I realized my sweater reeked and i thought oh man there's no way if i get pulled over anyone's ever going to believe i was hanging out with willie and if they did believe i was hanging out with willie there's no way they're going to believe i didn't partake so um you know that was dennis dennis was instrumental in that and as we did our trip to san diego for the biodiesel deal we we were in the process of trying to build this willie's willie this, this pickup truck that eventually you got to uh partake in I did. <laughs> and uh at that time we just had we had the we had the body unfinished uh-huh. we didn't have the engine in it yet we had we had the seat that had the willie autograph uh sewn into it embroidered into it and we got to san diego and uh i thought russ and peter were going to kill each other as we were driving out. They were just bickering constantly. We get to San Diego, and 
I had set up our hotel. And I thought it was a hotel that was on the beach. Uh-huh. And and this really should have let me know it was setting the tone for everything we were about to go through. <laughs> because we got there and the one the room that was ours, they had literally had to remove every piece of furniture because the guys who'd been in it before had had such a huge party they'd flooded the room. Oh wow. And the carpet was soaking wet. And it was like midnight when we got there. So it wasn't like we could just drive around and go find sure. another place. Yeah. And they'd already paid for the room. So at that point, there's like five of us. And there's a couple of cots and some sleeping bags on a wet carpet, which is just insane. Um, and we got, we, got to the, uh, we got to the biodiesel conference. And uh, that was actually the second time I met the infamous chicken dick, Jason Hardison, yeah. our, our buddy. Uh, he came in, and we had met him when we'd gone down to the uh, fundraiser for Kinky. Uh-huh. And we hadn't spent a whole lot of time with him there because he was running around just completely <laughs> insane, making that all happen. And uh, he, he showed up at the Biodiesel Convention, and, and it was funny. As we were as we were talking about biodiesel and alternative energy, and uh, he was there. He had this little little notepad he kept in his shirt pocket. And every once in a while, I'd say something. He'd whip that pad out, and he's like, Kinky's stealing that. And I said, you know, as long as Kinky knows where it came from, I don't care. <laughs> and and we, uh, you know, we, we just, we had, it was, I mean, it was a great conference. It was our very first biodiesel conference that we went to together. And as we were driving back from San Diego, uh, Russ and Peter got into such a fight that at one point, Russ slammed on the brakes of the truck that was hauling the Willie's Willies, uh-huh. and I thought it was going to wreck it. And he jumped out of the car, went one direction. Peter jumped out, went the other direction, and I looked and gave serious consideration to just leaving them both walking <laughs> the field. But I knew I didn't have any idea where the hell I was, so <laughs> I probably wasn't going to get very far. And uh, we got Peter up to to Dennis's. We had Dennis on the phone when we unveiled the the Willie's Willie, and um, he was was live broadcasting into the biodiesel conference <laughs> and talking to Willie, and you know it was Dennis was just such a incredibly sweet guy, mm-hmm. uh, and and funny and talented, and he came he came to Missouri Southern uh, one time. We were trying to do a this may have been one of the first times I met you. We were trying to do an economics conference, and we were looking at coming and doing something here in Crane. Yeah. Um, well, because I—that's the only time I met him was in Crane. Okay. Yeah, and and we had we can't it, broiler fest was it was that no 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 it was just like a, it was a it was just a thing for Dennis yeah. wasn't it okay so um, but Dennis had done a a one one man show he did this whole deal of, of Shakespeare uh-huh. and. I did not know at the time that he was suffering from prostate cancer, uh-huh. and he uh, man, he got up and he did this show at Missouri Southern, and I thought I just thought it was going to sell out, uh-huh. and you know we had done some radio spots and I'd done several different things, and but the the ticket office at Missouri Southern was taking care of all the ticket sales, uh-huh. and so the day of the event. I'm just glowing because, you know, Dennis is doing all this stuff. And I'm thinking, this is going to be awesome. And I go down and I'm like, so, 
How many tickets have we sold? <laughs> and the guy says, five. <laughs> I was like, what? That was, that was, uh, yeah, that was things to come. Oh, man. And I mean, I, I, I was mortified. And I literally began going around just giving as many tickets away as I could. <laughs> just trying to find bodies to, to you know, here, Dennis was coming in. He was doing a show. And I thought, yeah. And uh, he did it. The show was amazing. I mean, the show was truly sure, amazing. Yeah. He was leaping and dancing and jumping and, and all this stuff. Again, I didn't know he had prostate cancer. Uh, you would not, not have known it by watching him perform. Yeah. And then we came here the next day to Crane and uh, did several things here and, and with, with Peter and looked at the properties and um, yeah, but then, you know, unfortunately after, after Dennis passed away, uh, the, the Institute kind of, he needed to be there for it because like, it, it really, you know, I like his wife. She was wonderful. Woman oh, too. Jerry, Jerry was, she was a firecracker. That's for sure. She was, she was fun. Well, now the other person that we got introduced to from CD is our friend Larry Hagman. Yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, it was it was really funny. One day Jason called me and and wanted to know if Dennis knew Larry. And it turns out he did. Uh-huh. And I said, Well, you know what? Let me make a couple phone calls. So I called Dennis and left him a message. So we're doing this biodiesel thing down in San Antonio. Is there any chance you know Larry Hagman that we can maybe talk to him? And before Dennis could even call me back, Jason threw whatever weird and wonderful thing that he did. <laughs> calls me back and says, we got him. So we got him. Uh -huh. He says, yeah, Larry's going to be the keynote speaker at the Biodiesel Conference. I was like, I haven't even heard back from Dennis. <laughs> And he says, yeah, yeah, I know, I, I got it all down. And so, in that, in that whole meantime, basically, we started American Green Holdings, and we ended up going to the San Antonio Biodiesel Conference, where, where Jason had a setup in the, in the Manger Hotel. And With the two, the two hags, Larry, Larry Hagman and Merle Haggard, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember literally getting down there and walking into the room where Jason was at and he pretty much handed me a drink and says we've got an hour we need to write Larry's keynote speech <laughs> and I was like we we have to what um I hadn't even met Larry at that point it was just like hit the ground running and we we did we 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 wrote the speech and kind of during that time it was it was pretty cool cuz some of the things I'd written about Dennis's ideas of economics and sustainability and alternative energy that we had written for, for Kinky's gubernatorial campaign. Uh -huh. Willie took and recorded a bunch of them for radio spots. Uh -huh. um, and so I, I had this, this really cool moment where we were kind of backstage and Larry was rehearsing his keynote address. And, and I remember kind of looking at, at 
Jason thinking, this is pretty cool. I said, I know I don't get credited for any of them, but I have now had Dennis Weaver, Larry Hagman, Kinky Friedman, and Willie Nelson all read things I have written. Yeah. Said, That's pretty cool. Yeah. I said, and, and I didn't even, I was like, I'm not even worried about getting credit for it or anything. I know it's happened. Watching it happen, this is all just, this is just cool. Well, so tell me about what you think of Larry Hagman. Larry was just one of the most wonderful guys. You actually got to go to his house. I went to his house a couple of times. He invited okay. us out to his house. Um, you know, while we were there in Austin, oh, I'm not I'm sure if I, if you knew this story, we had, you had already gone home. Uh-huh. And it was our last night there and in San Antonio. In San Antonio, was, yes. Yeah. There had been no sleep. <laughs> no sleep at all. And the last night there, Larry wanted to go to some Mexican restaurant. Okay. So we go to this restaurant. It's right not too far off the Riverwalk. Okay. And Larry says to me, I I have to use the men's room. Okay. Which meant we had to walk through the bar. He says, I need you to run interference. I need you to stand between me and all the cameras. Okay. And I was like, okay. Now, granted, at that time, I was about 400 pounds. <laughs> so there was a lot of me to put between him and the cameras. Yes, definitely. And uh, so, What do you weigh now? Right now, I weigh 270. Okay. So, Sounds uh, pretty great. Yeah. Um, but as, as we were going through, we... Uh, you know, blocking the cameras and, and trying to keep the, the eyes off so he could go in and use the men's room. And I think Jason went in and cleared everybody out of the men's room at this bar. And uh-huh. uh, As we were walking back, I still got to stand between. And people were booing me, and we got out, and, and Larry just thought it was the funniest thing in the world. Um, but we had... He had invited Jason and I to come out to his house in Ojai, California. And... Uh, Jason and I both flew out to California, and we got there, and Jason had a, a cab for us. It was a, it was a minivan. Uh-huh. We're driving around looking for Larry's building. Yeah, he had a he had an apartment right by... It was, it was right off the thing in San... What was it? San... I remember it was it was a white building built into the side of a cliff. Yes. Overlooking the Pacific Coast Highway and the ocean. Yes. And it was it was amazing. But it was you know where it was was like it was one of Santa Monica. Yeah. Yeah, Santa Monica. And I remember we were looking for a condo building, so we're driving around at street level looking for numbers on the building. There on the right. Not realizing that he was yes, it was a tall building, but it was built into the ground. It was. (laughs) And all of a sudden, our cab driver pulls over and says he's got to check the engine. And of course, Jason and I are both on our phones doing business, because at that time, we lived and died by the phone. Sure. We still do. No, I do not. <laughs> and uh, it was, the, the, the driver gets out, and he runs over to Jason's side, the passenger side, and he whips open Jason's door. He says, get out, the, ca- the engine's on fire. So Jason and I kind of look at each other, and we go around front. Sure enough, there's a little tiny flame in the lower part of the engine toward the back. And this guy, he's just grabbing all of his stuff, and he's going out. I said, if you've got a fire extinguisher, we can put this out. This is no big deal. 
but he's completely freaking out, just grabbing all of his stuff. And so we go to the nearest condo that we're in front of, and they won't let us in. Jason literally calls 911, and they hung up on him. I thought he was kidding. Because the same day, the Hollywood Hills were burning. Yeah. And so they literally, 911, hung up on Jason. I will never forget <laughs> the look on his face as he's holding the phone out. 911 hung up on me. I said, call him back. And then by this time, flames are shooting out of the engine of the cab. And we've caught a palm tree on fire. And someone else, I'm sure, called 911. And they finally showed up. And our cab is now reduced to a, a burning piece of slag. And sure enough, it ends up we're right across the street from Larry's condo the whole time. Uh-huh. And Larry comes walking out, I kid you not, wearing like Japanese sandals, <laughs> suit pants, a jacket, an ascot, bandana kind of thing, a big old cowboy hat. He comes walking out, grinning great big, and he says, God damn, you boys know how to make an entrance. <laughs> and... Uh, so we stayed there at his condo with, with him and his, his wonderful wife, Mai. Um, stayed there for a couple nights, and then we headed on up to Ojai to his place and, and stayed there for, for several days, where Jason became only the second person to fully clothed fall into the indoor swimming pool <laughs> as, he, as he was reaching for a drink. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was the first time but we got to I really to thought that he was an amazing guy. I got to... Meet him when he was down in Santa Monica, you know. But he was, a, I just feel like if he had not cared about the things he'd already done, he could have been president. Oh, yeah. No, he was, he was, you know, he was smart. He was uh, such a caring guy. Um but and he just felt like you were the only person in the room oh, yeah. to talk to. Yeah. He he um God, there is so so many things. We we sat and we talked for so many hours, just hours and hours. And he would he loved, you know, I'm I'm a history buff and 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 obviously a, a political science buff and and we would talk about the the founders and the constitution and and history and alternative energy and just this gambit of things. And he actually, uh, he gave me a couple of books and one of them he referred to me as his library. <laughs> and he says, whenever I'm with you, I always learn something new. And we just um, always had a great, great well, time when we were together. You know, what I remember is that I really felt like, you know, because not only did it make you feel like you're the only person, I remember the night when we were down there at the Biden's thing in San Antonio, and Larry could have easily gone on and held the room and just been the center of attention. And instead, he went around and he said, I want to hear about how Dippin' Dots were invented because yeah. the person that invented Dippin' Dots were there. And so all he did was he immediately took the room and he took all the emphasis off himself and worked on the the guys who'd been a dipodot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he was. If there was anybody who could have been an egotistical asshole, it was Larry Hagman. Yeah. And he just 
chose not to but be. But he wasn't. He just, and... There wasn't a hint of that. He no. just, and you know, he'd be around, talk about organ donation, all these things. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he would just absolutely take the, the emphasis that would have naturally gone to him and just, you know, spread it around the room. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, <laughs> one of my favorite stories was, was with my Hagman. Um, we we had a fair amount of alcohol, but we had we did not have any wine, mm -hmm. and she was asking for some wine, and I don't know who we sent to go to the liquor store, but it was the wrong person, <laughs> because they came back with a bottle of Mad Dog Twenty Twenty. <laughs> oh Lord! And I remember, my saw the wine, and it's, and she says, Robert, pour me a glass of wine, please. And I said, my, this isn't really wine. This is only in the loosest sense. Robert, please pour me a glass of wine. And I kept trying to talk her out of it. I was like, I cannot give a billionaire's wife a glass of Mad Dog 2020. And so after several attempts to dissuade her from drinking it, she finally says, Robert, pour me the wine. <laughs> And all I could do was say, yes, ma'am, and have this surreal moment of you know, taking the screw cap off the Mad Dog 2020 <laughs> and pouring it into a glass for her. And I handed it to her, and she took a sip. And she kind of paced a little bit. And she looked at me, and she says, Robert, you were right. And hands me the glass back. <laughs> so we called down to the bar and asked for a bottle of wine. And they said they couldn't give it to us. In a bottle. We were asking for a bottle of wine and a bottle of Jameson's. Uh -huh. They said they couldn't give it to us in a bottle. It had to be poured out to leave the bar. So Jason says, all right, how many pours are in a bottle? Bring us that many. And so literally, the wait staff pulls up to that presidential suite in the manger, and they've got trays stacked. One of them with wine glasses <laughs> of a bottle of white wine, and the other with... Uh, eyeballs filled with Jameson's. And so we just had the glasses all spread all over the place, but we continued to to have our drinks. But yeah, it was... But yeah, I would just say that he was one of the more interesting people I ever got oh. a chance to meet. Yeah, he, you know, he he was, and and my was every bit as interesting. Yeah. She, was, she was so... such a strong woman. Uh -huh. And I, which I guess you'd have to be to be married to Larry Hagman for fifty some odd years. Yeah. And um, you know when she took me and showed me around the house in Ohio, uh -huh. um, she was she was showing around the the banister around the the, the balconies outside each window, there was a a banister, and, and she had taken out of this big piece of steel and cut out stick figures. In different positions of doing different things, and okay. um, and that was you know she artistically had done this at every place throughout the whole house, uh -huh. and then they took the big piece of steel that she cut all these figurines out of, and that became their gate. Mm -hmm. So it you know the negative of their gate was the positives of all these oh, wow. things around, and she took me out outside the library. She took me out one day and she says, 
this is the only place where I did naughty figurines. And she opened up this one door, and there were all these you know, pornographic stick figures <laughs> on this thing, and it was hilarious. We were walking down this uh, uh, circular flight of stairs, and it had what I thought was a piece of crown molding on top of the molded banister. And she stops, and she turns around, and she says, Robert. She always called me Robert. It was just, just the way she said it cracked me up. And she says, do you know what this is? And she pointed to what I thought was crown molding. She says, no, it's a garden hose. I found it had a hole in it, so I didn't want to get rid of it, so I reused it. Oh, you know, wow. she was she was Swedish, uh -huh. and and she was in Sweden at the end of World War II when they had almost nothing. Yeah, and so she learned from her father um, that you used everything. Uh -huh. no, there was no waste. Right. And that's why, you know, some of these ideas about sustainability and economics really resonated with her and Larry both uh, because they, they lived through those times. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, Mai showed us a part of the house where um, it had a convertible roof. The roof, literally, you push a button, the roof would retract. Wow. And the walls would open up. And I remember thinking... How is this sustainable? This is insane. And then she explains to me, because we're on top of a mountain, mm -hmm. and using the chimney effect, the house drew cooler air up out of the valley, and as it, as it worked as a chimney effect anyway, mm -hmm. but she drew it through the house by opening these windows oh, and wow. retracting the roof. And all these things that she did were all really spectacular green technologies that you really didn't look at as being green technologies. Sure. And of course, Larry had his, his uh, photovoltaic system that he used to run the, the whole 40 acres that they lived on and the yeah. irrigation and everything. And there was this great big red button. And, and Larry, one of, the, one of the few rules Larry really had was don't touch the red button. <laughs> because if you hit the red button, Larry had, they, they lived on the edge of a national forest. And he had a fire hydrant on his property. It was the only fire hydrant around. Uh -huh. And that red button did a flash dump on everything in the house. The swimming pool, the hot tub, uh -huh. everything to build up pressure for the fire hydrant in case of a forest fire. Uh -huh. to, to have something to be there. Wow. Uh, it, was just, it was just amazing. And, and just such a, one morning, I was I was up early, as I usually was, and Larry got up early, and he says, I'm gotta, I got to run down to the bottom of the mountain, we got to buy stuff for breakfast. I said, okay, I'll go with you. We get down there, and there's a guy selling emu eggs. Okay. And, and Larry's asking me, well, what do you do with these emu eggs? What do you eat them? Mm -hmm. And Larry looks at me, and he says, you wanna? And I was like, sure. So Larry buys an emu egg, and we buy a pound of bacon, and we go up, and Larry's handyman brings in a drill, and we drill into the eggshell, and we blow out the the yolk and stir it up. And so Larry and I are cooking breakfast, and he used to cook breakfast for us quite often when we were there. And it was just like you don't you don't expect. A billionaire is gonna not only fix his own breakfast, but fix it for everybody else. Uh -huh. 
But that was just the way that he was. Because he really, he had a time in his life where him and my were not wealthy. Yeah. Um, when One night we ordered Chinese food. And he says, we're going to do this the way I like to eat it. And so he ordered like literally almost one of everything on the menu. And when it got up to us, he dumped it all together. Uh-huh. And he said, when him and my were younger, and the kids were really little, they worked on Broadway, and they had an apartment above a Chinese restaurant. And they were so broke that the Chinese folks who ran the restaurant felt sorry for them, <laughs> and so would literally leave out a bucket of leftovers uh-huh. that the Hagmans would have for dinner. And he said that's the only way he likes to eat Chinese food is if it's all just thrown together in a bucket. Because <laughs> that was, you know, reminded him of those 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 times when he was not J.R. Ewing. Yeah. When he was struggling to, to make things happen. So uh, it just He was an incredible guy. Yeah. And I'm glad I got to meet. Oh yeah. Um him and him and Mai were just even you know, as as she had uh, Alzheimer's and began to to forget things, I'll never forget. We, you know, we oh, Jason put together the Dallas reunion. Yeah, and uh, went down there and 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 my saw me and and recognized me, and she was just just very insistent. I, come sit down with me. I was I was working trying to do stuff for Jason and. Come sit down. So I went and sat down and had a very nice time with my. She was, Larry and her were both just, just so much fun. As a matter of fact, Larry, you know, I, I live in Joplin and after we had the tornado that, you know, took uh-huh. out a huge chunk of the town, uh, Larry actually called to make sure I was okay. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that's just not one of those things you think of. No. Um, and he just, it was so funny because, he called my cell phone, and my wife, who had not met Larry, mm-hmm. um, she just saw the phone said Larry, and she thought it was another friend of ours named Larry, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden it went from, hi Larry, what's up, to, <laughs> oh, Mr. Hagman, <laughs> just a moment, <laughs> and it was just just Larry, just being, being Larry, he was, he was a prankster. Uh, just such a funny guy, and just so much fun to be around. And uh, you know, he he would talk about when he was val- uh, valet for other Hollywood stars when he was uh-huh. really starting out. Sure, you know, would, would tell us how we needed to to pack and to be able to you know how to press pants on the road. <laughs> and, um, well, of course, his mom was also a, a Broadway yeah. superstar. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, Mary Martin, Mary Martin, and oh, I can't even remember how the conversation came up because Larry's father, um, Larry said something about jumping off of a diving board into an empty swimming pool, or, or no, I made a joke about jumping off a diving board into an empty swimming pool, uh-huh. and he says. That's how my father died. Oh, really? And I thought Larry was jerking my chain. And he says, no, really. 
That's how my father died. Oh, wow. His father used to go out on New Year's Eve at stroke of midnight and dive into their pool in Texas. Uh-huh. And one year, someone had literally drained the pool, and Larry's dad didn't know it, and he dove into the pool head first, oh, wow. and there's no water in it. And the fall didn't kill him, but he had a, a stroke later on, afterward, the day, the next day, uh-huh. that eventually killed him. Wow. And, you know, I felt about two inches tall. <laughs> uh, you know, but but Larry still even took that in good humor. Yeah. Um, it was just, uh, he, he was, was truly, truly a great guy to be around. He really was. Well, thank you very much for sitting down with me and... I'm glad to have done this. I am too, Dale. Yes. And, uh, absolutely. Yes. And so what would you say is some good things to do about getting over a stroke? You know, control the things you can control. And one of the most important things to remember is that stress is the enemy. Yes. And learning positive ways to deal with our stress is a vital skill that Stroke or not, we all need to get better at. That's a good thing to close the podcast on. <laughs> thank you, Dale. All right, thank you. And uh, most likely then lay down and read. That's kind of it. Sounds good. Although I, I, I may end up going ahead and watching the next episode of The Mandalorian.